Welcome to today's class. Today is Thursday, the 26th of Menachem Av. It is the 5th day of August, and we're here together with all the Jews of rural Georgia. We're ready to learn about holy traditions. As an opening, I'm going to read to you a script from a movie, and we'll see if you guys can place it. You ready for this? You didn't know I was going to quote a movie today. Here in, Atve- in Atevka, we have traditions for everything. How to sleep, how to eat, how to work, and how to wear clothes. For instance, we always keep our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. So the guesses in the chat got it. I saw the smiles. You all know it is definitely from Fiddler on the Roof. Now you can rely on me that I have not watched Fiddler on the Roof. So I didn't know until I had to prepare this class. You need to see that movie. Yeah. Right. It's a must watch. Wonderful. It's a must watch. Huh? Every Jew must know Fiddler on the Roof. You know, just as a matter of digression, there is this um, there is this American Canadian Israeli journalist whose name I think is Matt Friedman. He's writing. He's written a bunch of books and he writes a lot of articles. One of his main things that he writes about is that um, the Israel that was founded in I think it's 1947, Eight. 1948, thank you. That Israel was founded by survivors of the shtetl, people who came from Russia, Europe, wherever, running from danger and, and moving to Israel. In fact, the most commonly spoken language in Israel at the time was Yiddish, just because that's where everybody came from. But then in the 50s and 60s and and so there was huge, um, huge migration of Jews from North Africa and from, from elsewhere in the Middle East region, like Iraqi Jews and Iranian Jews and um, Jews from Morocco and Tunisia and elsewhere. And all of these Jews are coming to Israel, but with a very different story. And so uh, why, why does this come to mind? You know, we say Fiddler on the Roof and you think, oh, that's the ultimate Jewish film. But in effect, it actually doesn't tell the story of the Jew for half of our population. I think that's a really in- interesting tidbit. Doesn't have, I mean, you could still watch the movie, but it's just an interesting insight into what's going on in the Holy Land and what's going on in the world altogether. Okay, with that said, these are the words from the film, The Fiddle on the Roof, and they are pretty accurate. Judaism is very much full of tradition. Sometimes we don't even know where a certain custom has originated from, but nevertheless, we observe it carefully. I'll give you an example of a custom that we're super careful about, and this is a custom. Cleaning your house for Pesach to the utmost last spot of speck of anything. That's, that's very much custom. 
it's basic Jewish law to clean. It's basic Jewish law to get rid of all chametz, but it isn't to whitewash the walls. Now that's next level. You know, that's, that's just a simple example. And there are many other examples that we are going to, um, there are two that we're going to discuss today, but there are more examples in your lives that you can connect with. Another um, example, right, is the keeper, right? Keeper, it's not, it's, it's now, it's already more obligatory, but it isn't biblical and it isn't, it's barely rabbinic. So these are fan, fascinating things that come up that you wonder, oh, where does that come from? Oh, well, let's look into it and let's find out where it comes from. And then it's, it's a custom. Now, okay, so let the, today's lesson is going to focus on a bunch of different customs that happened in the temple. And we'll see how, um, how these customs that didn't have an, a, a very strong, they don't have a very strong basis in, in biblical Jewish law in the Torah. Nevertheless, when fulfilling them, we do so with a major, major, and I'm going to use a Russian Yiddish word, shturim. S-H-T-U-R-E-M. Shturim means fanfare. It means a lot more than fanfare. It's like a whole shebang. And when, we, when we're keeping these customs, we're going to do it with all of our attention. Okay, let's jump straight in. We're going to go to piece number one, section one, source number one. Source number one is a verse from our Parsha. Drew, you know that the Torah is divided into 54 Parshas. And there are 52 weeks in the year, minus of a bunch of holidays. Every week of the year, we read another Torah portion. This Parsha, this week, we're reading the portion of Re'eh. I think so. I'm pretty sure that's right. It is right. Okay. Look at that. So we're reading the portion of Re'eh. And it is in the book called Deuteronomy. And we discover there is a variety of mitzvahs, such as the prohibition of worshipping idols and the rules of kosher slaughter and kosher food. But then there is the list of holidays. By the way, the, the holidays are listed a few times throughout the Torah, but we're going to feature one of them today. When we mention Sukkot, the holiday of Sukkot, which happens typically at the end of September, beginning of October, always at the end of the month of Tishrei, so the Torah emphasizes the obligation to be joyful, which is interesting. And this doesn't feature in any of the other holidays specifically, although a Jew has to be joyful every single day, and especially when they're serving God, which is every moment of our lives. Nevertheless, here there's a special emphasis on simcha, on joy. Let's take a look. We're going to start. Please, Juan, if you will begin reading for us source one, both verses. <clears throat> you shall rejoice on your festival alone with your son and daughter, your servant and maidservant, and the Levite. Levite. Uh, uh, light orphan and will from your settlement. Uh, celebrate to God your Lord for seven days in the place that God will choose since God will, will, will then bless you in all your agriculture and all the so that you will be 
only happy. Okay, thank you. Can you still hear me here? Yes. I'm, get, I'm getting notifications about my microphone. So if I get disconnected, um, please wave at me at the very least. Okay, so we have a verse, a verse in the Torah, which says, you shall rejoice. By the way, in the Torah, whenever there is the term Chag, just those two letters, Chag, which you have in the first two words of this verse, the second, the second word says Chag, right? Chag in the Torah is always a reference to Sukkot, which said differently, Chag without any descriptive terms is always going to be Sukkot. So all other holidays are also called Chag, but when it comes to Chag plain, that means Sukkot. Okay, so here you go. There is a mitzvah to be joyful. You've got to be happy, joyful on the holiday. Everybody together for seven days. Um, you should go to the place God has chosen, which is, of course, the temple. And there you will be happy. Be only happy. It, tangentially, if you go to the right synagogues, like, for example, in the ones that I go to. So when they read this portion in the, um, in the Torah, they, uh, when they read these two verses, they read them with like an extra excitement. Um, something like if you look at the last three words, it says, so, um, so the reader will typically, sometimes it happens, it's not always, it's sometimes, the reader will, um, will change the cantillation notes, the trop, and he'll read instead, it's like extra, it's not, that's not the cantillation notes, but that is just like the excitement of this commandment that God has said, be only happy, um, the Often the, the, the leader will be so excited. Okay, that was a tangential note. Let's go to source two. This is a comment from Tractate Sukkah. Sukkah 48b discusses, um, discusses a celebration that happens in the temple. What is the celebration? <clears throat> well, every single day in the temple, there is a certain libation that happens on the altar. What is that libation? It is a performance with wine. Wine is poured onto the temple, onto the altar. During Sukkot, there is an additional ceremony during which water is poured onto the altar. Now you're wondering, hey, I read through the five books of Moses and there is no mention of water being poured onto the altar. And that is the topic we are about to enter. We're about to get involved in exactly that. So let's take a look. Please, let's ask Alan, will you read for us Source 2 in its entirety? How is the water libation performed? A golden jug with a capacity of three log was filled from the Siloam pool. When they reached the gate of the water, they sounded a tekiah, teruah, and tekiah. The priest ascended the ramp of the altar and turned to his left. Two silver basins were there, perforated at the bottom with two nose-like protrusions. One had a broad perforation and one had a thin perforation, so that the flow of both the water and the wine, which do not have the same viscosity, would conclude simultaneously. The basin on the west was for water. The basin on the east was for wine. 
Thank you, Alan. So we already noticed how there's extra effort happening over here. This isn't something regular. The, the priests are going to this, the, to this Siloam pool and they're getting water. And then when they come back, they're going to blow the shofar, unusual in a way. And then they pour, they put it into these silver basins and, and then, you know, the liquids empty out onto the altar. And all of this is somewhat unusual and especially unusual if there is no verse for it. Remember, we are people of the book. We do what it says. So what's going on? This is extra. Let's take a look. Source three is Talmud. Uh, Talmud, again, tractate Sukkah. Again, the Talmud about Sukkot. But this time we're on page 51. And let's, um, let's take a look what it says over here. So the unique, this unique ceremony on Sukkot is actually held with great pomp and celebration. Each night of Sukkot, a massive party would be held in the temple, replete with music and dancing and the masses of people. At dawn, the crowd, the entire crowd would head down to the, the Shiloam pool where the vessels would be filled up and then brought to the temple for the pouring on the altar. You are about to be blown away by the descriptions that are mentioned over here. And for this experience, let us call upon Professor Blumenthal. Whoever did not see the Simchat Beit HaShoevah, the celebration of the place of the drawing, has never seen a real celebration. At the conclusion of the first day of the festival, the women's courtyard, the main temple courtyard, would undergo significant repair. Golden candelabras were set up, each with four basins of gold at its top and four ladders for each pole. Four young priests would take pitchers with a capacity of 120 log of oil and pour them into each basin. The light was so bright that there wasn't a courtyard in Jerusalem that wasn't illuminated from the light of the Simchat Beit HaShoevah. The pious men and leaders would dance before the crowd while juggling flaming torches, and they would say passages of song and praise. The Levites would play on lyres, harps, cymbals, and trumpets, and countless musical instruments, while standing on the 15 stairs descending from the Israelites' courtyard to the women's courtyard, which correspond to the 15 songs of the ascents in Psalms. Hold on. Okay, so you got a description here from the Mishnah about what it would look like to be at this moment, what the experience is, what the schedule is, what it's like. I must tell you, I have never been there, but I have heard from someone who was there, the author of the Mishnah, that it was an experience that had nothing comparable to it. By the way, if you've ever heard someone say, if you haven't seen this, you haven't seen anything. You ever heard, you ever heard someone say that? Most likely the first written source for such a quote is this Mishnah, right? How many, how many, how many other uh, li literature, how much other literature is there dating back to the time of, um, to, to the flip of BCE to CE? I don't know. I don't think there's much. And here you have a text which says, if you haven't seen it, you didn't see anything back to then. That's pretty cool. Okay. But the Talmud has a question. The Talmud wants to know the answer to this question. Talmud says, from where do you know this stuff? He says, Omar Rav, Rav Eino said, 
that it is as the verse says. This is a verse quoted from Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. The verse says, With joy you shall draw water out of the springs of salvation. Ushavtem mayim besosim. So start again. Let's just take a look at this. We have this major celebration happening in the temple. Huge renovations. Huge renovations happen in the temple to prepare for the crowds that turn up for this event. And in the meanwhile, in the meanwhile, there's no biblical source for it until Isaiah. Right? Not in the five books of Moses. In the later prophets, you hear about you should draw water with uh, draw water out of the springs of salvation. So this is the big question. What is the source? How does this all come to be? Okay, let's take a look at the Rebbe's Sikha. And that is um, on your pages. I don't know, but it goes for one, two, three, four or so paragraphs. And we will honor Drew. Are you able to read for us? Absolutely. Would love to. Okay, so go for it. What is still... the meaning of the celebration? I hope you're able to still hear me. We can. Okay. It says, what is the meaning of the celebration? The Talmud asks, what is the source for the elaborate celebration of the water libation and the Simchat Beit Hashavah? It answered by citing a verse, with joy you shall draw water out of the springs of salvation indicating that this verse refers to the water libation of Sukkot and commands that the drawing be done with joy. For this reason, we find that the primary celebration took place at the drawing of the water and not when it was actually poured on the altar. However, the verse only indicates that the drawing should be a joyous occasion, while the Mishnah and Talmud say more. Whoever did not see the Simchat Beit HaSheovah has never seen a real celebration. The act of drawing water evoked such joy that it outshined all other celebrations, even the joy of the holiday itself. This raises a question. The obligation to be joyful on the holiday is a biblical commandment with a clear verse in the Torah. You shall rejoice on your festival. On the other hand, this verse in Yeshaya says, with joy you shall draw water, is not explicitly associated with the Sukkot celebration. The sages understood, Michelle, I'm on something. The sages understood the verse celebrate as a reference to this custom only because there is no other ritual in which water is drawn. Nonetheless, the joy during the drawing of the water is based on an extrapolation from Isaiah. Seems greater than the holiday, joy, which is an explicit biblical commandment. This raises the question, what is the source for this tradition? And my apologies for the interruption. Drew, it's delightful to know you have a full family going on. Don't worry about it. Okay, so what do we have? What did the Rebbe leave us with? The Rebbe leaves us with this, with this conversation. He's like, There's, here is the source. The source is, is, is Isaiah. It only says, draw the water with joy. It doesn't say, make the fanfare that nothing compares to ever in Jewish history. You know, I mentioned before that they make renovations in the temple for this. What is the renovations that they would make? So 
obligation, when you're talking about obligation, a Jewish man must come to the temple three times a year for the holidays, Sukkot, Pesach, and Shavuot. A Jewish woman, her obligation is to come once in seven years. Many women came more often than that. And that's, up, and that's great. That's fantastic. But obligation, they only have to come once in seven years, and that's for the hakel um, experience, which is when all Jews should come to the temple on the, during Sukkot, and the king gets, sits, which is huge, sits on an elevated stage in the middle of the temple and reads from the Torah. No one is allowed to sit in the temple ever, aside from the king one time a year at that hakel event. Okay, but now we have this. So again, so what happens during the Simchat Beit HaShoeva? They put up this um, tall balcony, which by the way, if you've ever been to Shul and you've seen a balcony in the Shul where the women are on top and the men are on the bottom, this is kind of a Talmudic sourced because that is the only time in Jewish um, literature where we have this conversation of you need to separate the men from the woman. And there's this long conversation about um, do the men stand on top and the woman at the bottom? Do the women stand at the, at the top and the men at the bottom? And uh, the men were uncontrollable, so they had to keep them at the bottom. That's the simple story. Um, that's, that's what it says in the Talmud. I didn't make it up yet. Um, with all of that said, this is all done so as to prepare for this major celebration. And remember, the major celebration has only one biblical source, and that is a, a pasuk in Isaiah, which says you shall which says you should you should draw the water with joy, and even that verse is not explicitly related to Sukkot. It's just understood to be connected to this specific celebration. So we have this major question: What is the source for this tradition? Okay, but with all of that, we're going to leave you guys hanging. Cliffhanger, and now we'll look over to another time on the Jewish calendar where we have such a similar custom that doesn't have enough that doesn't have enough sources for it to satisfy. So let's take a look. Uh, section B. Before we go there, anyone with a question or comment? Go for it, Alan. So human nature. So there was a time when uh, at one place that I worked that we had once a week or once a month, somebody would make a, a breakfast spread, you know, bagels, cream cheese, whatever. Nice. I'm coming. Yeah. I think I did the first, yeah, I think I did the first one. It was just, it was pretty plain, just, you know, some bagels and some cream cheese. Was By anyone the time else we Jewish decided, Do I? Was anyone else Jewish for the bagels and cream cheese? No, no, it was just me. Okay. But by the time it was over with, I mean, like many, 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 you know, a couple of years later, uh, the last person to, to do this brought a checkered tablecloth, baskets with, with food, and I mean, just one heck of a spread because every time we did it, it got to be more and more and more. You know, when I do mine, it'll be better than the last. So I'm just wondering if some of this, the, the notion that, you know, the celebration becomes this incredible thing is more about every year. It just has to be better than the last because that's the way people are. That's a great question. I think that's a really good question. And that's a good observation 
are normal people. A regular person wants to outdo the guy before him. And similarly, when, you know, the, you call it the committee of the temple wants to outdo last year's committee on That's celebration, right. <laughs> right? That's simple. And uh, you know what? I, my, my initial knee-jerk answer is that um, this, is, this was probably a major celebration from moment one, from the first time it ever happened. That said, does that mean that, uh, does that, mean that um, it didn't develop over time? It probably did develop over time, right? Like the Tamil tells us that first the men were on the top and the women were on the bottom, and then the women were on the top and the men were on the bottom. Right, so uh, so this is this is part of the development. That and there, you know, as we read in the in the um, in the Talmud con- quote, there's a lot of con- there's a lot of parts of it that were developed over time. So with all of this, we could naturally say yes, it developed over time. But there is also some urge to celebrate it. There's some need to celebrate the custom. This is a custom. It's not a mitzvah. It's a custom. And we want to know, us in our conversation tonight, we want to know why the absolute need to celebrate this custom so very much. That's the direction we're going. So your question is great because it just builds the question even further. Why do you want to celebrate this? Drew, go for the question. My question was, and because uh, I'm learning all of this, uh, those who don't know, I'm, I'm a B'nai Noyak. Um, the, the, the basin that it was talking about being on the, uh, north side of the altar, uh, and had nozzles, nose shaped nozzles that would allow the wine and the water, uh, different viscosities to flow out. Is that referring to the brazen altar? Uh, the one that was surrounded by bulls or is that something totally different? Cause I was just curious about that. This is to the best of my understanding, it is reference to the altar made of stone in the center of the temple. Where, all, where the animals went. It is not reference to the um, internal altar where there was burnt incense. So great question. And um, it's, the answer is, to, as far as I know, that it's the central altar in the temple. Awesome. Okay, let's go with section two, the Passover equivalent. We're going to find a similar um, thing, which is celebrated as from a mitzvah into a big deal. So who are we missing? Let's go for Robert. Will you please read for us source four, all of the psukim. These are God's festivals that you must celebrate as sacred holidays at their appropriate times. Then on the 15th of that month, it is God's festival of matzahs, when you eat matzahs for seven days. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you come to the land that I am giving you and you reap its harvest, you must bring in Omer, a biblical measurement, of your first reaping to the priest. He shall wave it before God so that it will be acceptable for you. He shall wave it on the day after the Shabbat. You shall then count seven complete weeks after the day following the Shabbat when you brought the Omer as a wave offering until the day after the seventh week when there will be a total of 50 days. Then you shall present the new grain. You shall present new grain as a meal offering to God. Okay, very good. So thank you, Rabbi Shmuel. Let's take a look at these psukim, at these verses. So if we could, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, say them by the paragraph number. Okay, the first two paragraphs, the first two verses, they tell us 
the date of the holiday. The holiday starts on the 15th day of the month. Easy. The second two tell us of a commandment to go out, um, to go out when you're going to reap the harvest, you got to bring an omer and bring it to the priest. And the priest will do something with it. He will do a procession with it. So there you go. The Torah says, and if you can read with me on the, it's the, um, which verse is it for you? It's one, two, three, four. The fourth verse. Take a look. The first word of that verse is Vehenif. The last word of that verse is Hakohen. So go back one, two, three, four words. Now we're up to the word Mimocharas. Mimocharas means the day after. Ha Shabbos, the Shabbos. If you read this verse without knowing anything otherwise, you would think that this is reference to the day that follows Shabbos. What day is that? Sunday. Sunday follows Shabbos. Always. That's how it is meant to be. Okay. The next two verses say, you should count for yourself seven complete weeks after the day following the Shabbat. And that's the day that you brought the Omer. That's a, and then until the seventh week, and that's a total of 50, and then you can bring the new grain. And by the way, that's when Shavuot is that day, on the 50th day, that should be celebrated as a holiday. Ta -da 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 -da. Okay, so what do we have over here? This is the source of a major, major um, Talmudic argument. Okay, in the oral law, I'm, skip, I'm going ahead. Okay, so this whole conversation is a reference to the holiday of Shavuot which take, takes place exactly 50 days following the bringing of the Omer sacrifice. So let's figure it out. The date of the Passover holiday, it says specifically, explicitly in the Torah, it has to start on the 15th day of Nisan. The holiday of Shavuot is also very clear. It has to be 50 days following the bringing of the Omer. So the question is, when do you bring the Omer when is this day called Mimacharad HaShabbat, the day after Shabbat, Shabbos? This is a big question because there's no, there's no other indications about it. So our sages have an oral tradition that the word Shabbos in this verse is not to be used literally to be the seventh day of the week. Rather, it should be a reference to the first day of Passover. It tells us to bring the Omer offering on the second day of the holiday. And then from the second day of the holiday, you count your 50 days until Shavuot, which means that the holiday of Shavuot will, Shavuot will always fall out on the sixth day of Sivan. Let's do that briefly again. The verse says the day after Shabbos. And the oral tradition tells us that this doesn't mean Sunday. It means the day after the holiday of Pesach. The first day of Pesach is the 15th of Nisan. So the day you bring the Omer is on the 16th of Nisan. 16th of Nisan plus 50 days brings you to the 6th of Shavuot, which is uh, the 6th of Sivan, which is Shavuot. However, all is not well. This isn't great. What's the problem? In the period of the second temple, there were groups of Jews who rejected the oral tradition. Not so uncommon. 
and they argued with the sages. They argued with the with with the tradition. So it was this group of people who were called the Baitusim, and in English you would call them the Boethusians. And they were, they were, I'm reading for, over here, they were an aristocratic group of priests who operated in the first half of the first century AD as one of the religious sects during the second temple era. They were in constant dispute with the Pharisees about the oral Torah. They disagreed with the Pharisees on three principles. Number one, they believed that there is no reward and punishment. Number two, they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And number three, they interpreted many verses in the Torah, literally ignoring the oral traditions of the sages. Well, right here, this whole conversation about the Omer is using an oral tradition. Instead of meaning the day after Shabbos, it means the 16th day of Nisan. So the Baitosim did not accept this view. They said Shabbat is the seventh day of the week, and therefore their interpretation the Omer offering is brought on the first Sunday after Passover, which means that now Shavuot is going to be on a different day every year of the calendar. This is a problem. How do you say it? Houston, we have a problem. Or maybe they said Temple, we have a problem. I don't know what they said. I'm not sure. Okay. Um, so let's take a look what the Rebbe is going to say about the fanfare of the Omer offering. And where are we up to? Let's get Alan. Can you read for us, please? Again, the Rebbe. And, oh, it's, uh, you can handle this. Four or five paragraphs. Off you go. I think you can handle it. You are mute. Still on mute. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I did it to you this time. Yikes. <laughs> I'm trying to be the Zoom Gabai. And I'm acting too slow. Okay, off you go. The fanfare of the Omer, Omer offering. We can answer the question with the following preface. We find a similar concept regarding Passover. In fact, the months of Nisan and Tishrei are considered counterparts. Tishrei is the beginning of the year, while Nisan is the beginning of the months and their respective holidays. Sukkot and Passover have many similarities. Passover also has a very public ritual, the reaping of the Omer offering on the second evening of the holiday. The Mishnah says that all the nearby townspeople would gather so that the reaping would be carried out with great fanfare. Once it grew dark, he would say to the assembled, did the sun set? And they would respond, yes, shall I reap the sheaves with the sickle? Yes, shall I place the gathered sheaves in this basket? Yes, shall I cut the sheaves? Cut. The emissary asked three times with regard to each and every matter, and the assembly says to him, yes, yes, yes. The reason the reaping was held with such fanfare is explained in the Mishnah's continuation. Why was all this done? Due to the Batsusim who would say, the harvest of the Omer does not take place after the first day of Passover. They maintain that Shabbat in the verse is to be interpreted literally. The publicity was created to reject the Baitsusim's interpretation and underscore that the 16th of Nisan was a proper time for the Omer harvest. In other words, although this was an ordinary offering similar to the offerings brought daily in the temple, 
They surrounded the specific offering with great pomp and ceremony, even the preparations for the offering for the express purpose of making a point against the Beit Susim. Is there okay. more? <laughs> I think that's it. No, nope. that's, that's it. it. That's it. I just have to find the unmute button for myself this time. Okay. So the Mishnah has told us that although the reaping was only a preparation for the offering and not essentially different from the other offerings in the temple, they enacted a custom to prepare and offer the Omer offering with great fanfare. Why? To demonstrate publicly that they were remaining true to the traditions of their ancestors who brought this offering on the first Sunday after Passover. So we've got this, we've got this major thing over here um, where we're making a big deal about something so as to be sure that nobody thinks otherwise. I'll give you another example. The, I mean, another detail in, the, in this example. You remember the first example that we gave was about the pouring of the water. So there, there was a certain high priest who was a member of the Baitusim. He joined their camp. The, the sages tell us that, the Talmud tells us that he was actually a Kohen Gadol for 80 years. That is a long time. Maybe he was 80 years old. He couldn't have been a, a thing for 80 years. He was probably 80 years old. That's my memory there. Okay. So he's 80 years old. And at the end of his life, he decides he's going the Baitusi way. He comes out of the closet on the holiday of Yom Kippur. Of not Yom Kippur, of Sukkot. First day of Sukkot, they're pulling, they're getting, second day of Sukkot, they're getting the water ready to pour. And he is leading the service and he takes the water. And instead of pouring it onto the altar, he pours it onto his feet. This is a clear and very obvious sign that he is from the, he is from the, the non-believers. So what did they do? What did the people do? The people are all standing there in the temple watching the Kohen Gadol perform the service. Everybody has their eyes glued to the center stage. Now, remember, this holiday is the holiday of Sukkot. So what do Jews arm themselves with on Sukkot? You have the lulav. It's a very tall, thin, um, tight leaf situation. And you have the etrog. Etrog is like a, a, a lemon, a large lemon-shaped um, fruit, bright yellow. And it is ball-like. So the Talmud tells us that in response to the people, to the high priest pouring the water on his feet and denying this, um, this celebration of custom, the Jewish people present, all the people present, threw their etrogs at the high priest. They pelted him and stoned him with etrogs until he... until he... And, and that was a sign... That was like the way, that was the people saying, we are not going to let you uh, rebel against tradition here in the seat of tradition in the temple. Let's take a look right before, we're going to go to um, section C, all to make a point. But before we do that, 
questions or comments on section B. Okay, so let's go straight to section C. Section C starts with a Tosefta. A Tosefta is like a Mishnah, just of lesser, um, how are you gonna say this? Not lesser importance, but lesser value halachically. So it has, it doesn't have as much strength when coming to make a decision. So let's take a look to Sefta from Rosh Hashanah, num, chapter one, um, maybe it's clause 11. The custom of the water libation isn't stated explicitly in the Torah. As we mentioned earlier, it was an oral tradition passed down from Moses through the generations. Rabbi Akiva explains the custom as follows. Here is the Tosefta, ready, set, go. Rabbi Akiva said, the Torah said, bring an omer of Bali on Passover, the season of Bali, so that the grain shall be blessed for you. Bring wheat and first fruits on Shavuot, the season of the trees, so that the fruit will be blessed for you. Bring the water libation on Sukkot so that you will be blessed with rains. Now we know another reason or another need for this specific custom. Source number six comes from Tractate Sukkah, the Talmud that we've been studying all evening. And this time we're on page 48b. As an introduction, the water libation could be understood in the context of the seasonal offerings that were brought in the temple, like we just spoke about. The omer was offered for God's blessings for grain. The first fruit were brought to bless the, the, the fruit, and the water libation was, was to mark the beginning of the rainy season. Now, this was a custom rejected by these groups. In this case, it was a different group. This time it's called the Sadducees. The Sadducees lived in the, in the, um, in the Second Temple era, and they were like the Baitusim. Um, and it's actually historically unclear if they were two different groups. Nevertheless, they're mentioned by their two different names. So we use two different names for them. Um, so one year, the priest appointed to carry out the water libation was a Sadducee. And instead of following the protocol, pouring the water into the altar, he poured the water onto his, foot, onto his leg. The masses of people in the temple were, by and large, Pharisees. They were infuriated and immediately expressed their anger, as explained, as I'm gonna, we're going to read in the next source. From that year and onward, the priest was asked to lift his hands while he poured the water to demonstrate publicly that he was doing the process correctly. This is a development that comes year to year, Alan. You must be excited now. Okay, you don't have to be, but if you'd like to be, you can. Let's take a look. We're going to read this, these four lines from the Talmud. Now, let's give this to Drew. Drew, can you handle four lines? I sure can. Go for it. Hopefully, hopefully won't be <laughs> interrupted. <laughs> All right. So, uh, let's see. Uh, okay, are we are you talking about reading source where it says the Rebbe? Source six. Okay, source six. Okay, gotcha. All right, Talmud Tractate Sukkah 48b. The appointee says to the one pouring the water, raise your hand. As one time a priest poured the water on his feet, and the people stoned him with their air trogs. Okay, so there you go. That is a, that is a, um, you know, people say, oh, why, why this capital punishment in Jewish, in Jewish law? Here you have an example of when there was a public capital punishment. And that is a joke because they were not, uh, the, the bait didn't, didn't instruct it. They did it on their own. Okay, so we've read that, source six. Let's move on to the Rebbe. And now we will see the rationale of the Simchat Beit HaShoeva. And let us give this 
to um, Robert, if you will read the first three paragraphs, please. With this in mind, we can understand the meaning behind the great celebration of Sinchat Beit HaShoeva. The water libation is not explicitly written in the written Torah, and therefore the Sadducees rejected it. The Talmud relates that the priest was told to raise his hand while pouring so that everyone would be able to see, because a Sadducee priest once poured the water on his leg and the entire crowd stoned him with etrogs. We can suggest that this is the reason for the immense celebration that surrounded the water libation. The verse merely states that the water should be drawn with joy, but nevertheless, since the Sadducees rejected the entire ritual, the sages instituted an elaborate celebration for the entire event, doing it with unparalleled fanfare, much like the customs surrounding the Omer offering. Thank you, Robert. So what have we got? The Rebbe has told us that the Simchat Beit Sheva, all surrounding and celebrating the pouring of the water, this was, it seems like it's enacted just to show to the Sadducees who rejected it and to demonstrate to the public that when this is how we're going to reject, we're going to push away the attempts to overthrow tradition while we remain steadfast to the traditions of the Torah and of Moses. So you see, perhaps the reason for the major celebration is because we want to show that we are not straying at all. Let's take a look, making a woman part of it, Alan. This was also the reason that they would arrange significant repair in the temple courtyard. What exactly was the repair? The Talmud relates that there were protrusions in the walls of the courtyard, and each year they would construct a balcony, allowing the women to gather on the balcony and witness the celebration while the men gathered on the floor below. From a perspective of biblical law, women are obligated to come to the temple only once in seven years for the hakel gathering at the close of the sabbatical year, when the entire Jewish people would gather to hear passages of the Torah from the king. Otherwise, we find only one other instance in which a special place was arranged for women to participate in the events at the temple. The celebration of the Simchat Beit HaShovah in Rashi's words, so that the women would be able to stand there and witness the celebration. The explanation is, as we said before, the Sadducees objected to the entire ritual of the water libation. Therefore, the sages made it into a fundamental part of Judaism and created this entire elaborate celebration, ensuring that women participate as well, all to emphasize the mistake of the Sadducees. And obviously, when all the details of the water libation are carefully carried out, according to the instructions of the Torah, is a great reason to celebrate. Okay, thank you, Alan. So, we come to the end of this Sicha, but we've got a lot to take away. The, this, the Rebbe concludes with this piece about the ladies coming into the temple and the renovations that we make in the temple for them. Now, why do we gen when we when when we usually use this text, this Talmud that the Rebbe is quoting here? What do we use it for? We use it for mechitza, explaining to people why we separate men and women in in religious activities. Now, but what's happening here is we're using this text for something else entirely. The message that we're bringing out here is we're including the woman 
because it's so important to show everybody needs to know what happens and how valuable and how important and how strictly we will stick to our traditions. Now, one of the foundations of Judaism is the belief that the written Torah was given alongside the oral Torah, the oral tradition, both given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Over the generations, the Torah has been passed down, traditions and customs, father to son, teacher to student, mother to daughter. These traditions shape our lives and they help us preserve our peoplehood. The Jews have always given tremendous respect to the elders and to the teachers, specifically because they are the ones who connect us to our traditions. I'll give you an example of that is the word zakain. Zakain means elder. The Torah, the Talmud tells us zakain is actually an acronym for ze shekana chachma. Zayin ze kuf. Zakain is spelled Zayin kuf nun. So the kuf nun is ze shekana. Kana is kuf nun. Chachma, what do they get? They, they, this person in his elderliness has acquired much knowledge and expertise. In fact, when I call people up and I say, hey, I want to hang out with you, it's because I want to get, I'm asking them, my number one ask is, share with me what you have to share. I want to learn from my elders. Now, throughout our history as a nation, there's always been these groups that come and say, oh, we, this tradition doesn't make sense. I'm following only what it says in the written Torah. This doesn't work. The written Torah is my source for everything. Often they're developing their own elaborate interpretations just because it's more comfortable. It works better for them. It's more interesting. They are intending to preserve what they view as the essence of Judaism, but they're at the same time, they're ignoring the superstitions and the impositions, you know, in inverted commas. But history has proven that generally speaking, those communities and those groups do not survive the test of time. Time and again, all their members typically assimilate or rejoin to normative Jewish community. A perfect example, by the way, is so uh, Moses Mendelssohn, I'm pretty sure that's the fellow's name, was the first person to reform the prayer book in Germany in the late 1800s, I believe. All of his kids, uh, all of his kids eventually married out and converted to Christianity. He thought he was preserving by making it more available. And his children left completely. That's just an example. The Judaism that we observe and the Judaism that has survived the test of time is the traditional Judaism that links us back to Moses at Mount Sinai. And it's the oral tradition that has preserved us until today and will continue to preserve us into the future. Like Tevya says, tradition. It's all about the tradition. So in the custom of the Simchat Beit HaShoeva, we see how the Jewish values and treasures, how Judaism values and treasures traditions. And if there was ever a group that was rejecting it, there was immediate effort to create an elaborate affair around it. Why? To ensure 
that it's treasured and continued. Notice, by the way, there wasn't like a um, annihilation of groups of people. There wasn't a segregation of kicking them out of community. Simply, we're making it, we're going to make a big deal about what's important so that everybody knows this is valuable and anyone else can come and join the party. So the custom of Simcha Rabbeinu Sheva continued all the way through the destruction of the second temple. And then when there was, after the destruction and there's no more sacrifices and we couldn't keep any more the, um, these libations, so it kind of paused. Now, historically, in 1980, the Rebbe brought this custom back in a unique way. So the one, one was the, what was what the Rebbe said. Uh, the Rebbe gave a speech on the first night of Sukkot, and he said that we're obligated to celebrate Simcha Beit Sheva, even though we don't have a temple. Why? Because we have an internal temple in our hearts. We have a temple. So the Rebbe concluded in that speech. He said, "May this joy bring us to the great joy of the coming of Mashiach, and we will thank God with Shech, and we will thank God with the Shechianu." And then the Rebbe began to sing, and he encouraged the singing as he left the synagogue. Remember, this is a synagogue full of literally thousands of people, and I'm pretty sure my dad was there at the time, and he is still here today with us on the call. So in the nights that followed this event, the, the Rebbe spoke every single night of Sukkot, which is another eight nights, and the Rebbe encouraged the singing and the dancing until the singing and dancing spilled out onto the street. And at first it was on the street just outside the synagogue. And then it moved to take over the entire avenue, which is the central street of Crown Heights, which one day when we do a group trip to New York, we will definitely go take a look at that. And now, I mean, like nowadays, it is the biggest scene out there. Um, thousands of people come. Literally, there are thousands of people. You can watch live streams of it um, on YouTube and all the important websites. And it's a huge gathering of people. All in all, to sum up the conversation, what we saw was people are pushing away a custom. And so the rabbis say, let's focus on this custom and show its beauty. Let's make a big deal about it because it is so very important. And so, my friends, brothers, and sisters, let us make an extra commitment and succeed in our commitment to hold steadfast to the traditions that make us so special. And with that, I wish us all a Shabbat Shalom. And I thank you for joining us.